Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. class. I'm MC Owens, your host. Uh, every Sunday night we get together here and we talk about different Buddhist texts, uh, sutras. Uh, tonight we are talking about the Anapanasati Sutta, the sutra or the discourse on breath mindfulness, breathing awareness. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about ways to translate that in a minute. Uh, tonight's class is a continuation sort of of last week's but only in theme. Because the theme of March is mindfulness. We're doing mindfulness this month. Um, But this will also help you if you plan to do this on your own. And the way I'm going to do the class tonight is I'm going to do it in the format where I kind of go over some of the words and go over some of the ideas really quickly. And then I'm just pretty much going to read this text, like cut back, you know, from the beginning to the end. Uh, the idea being that this, the text speaks perfectly fine for itself if you know a few things going into it. So that's all I want to do is make clear uh, the ideas that are on the board that are going to appear in the text, and then we're going to read it. Um, again, this is a continuation of last week, which we focused on the four foundations of mindfulness. Again, that's the theme of the month, mindfulness. And in Buddhism, of course, mindfulness is the name of the game. Sati. Sati is the Pali word for mindfulness. Um, And traditionally in Buddhism, we place our mindfulness, our focused attention, we place it on one of four things in kind of a progression. We focus on our body and then bodily sensations or sensations of the organs and then mind or mind states And then finally, we're focusing on these kind of truths or dharmas, all right? This is what we went over last week. This is the classic formula for Buddhism, which is that if one is going for enlightenment, going for liberation, going for nirvana, then one begins with where we're at in the body. And you begin not only with the body, but you begin with the breath. That was the first foundation last week. We went over all four, but the first foundation was the body. And the first observation of the body is the breath. All right. But then last week, we went from the breath. We went to bodily sensations. We went through mind states. We went through all of these different focuses of attention. All right. And that's a great, the Satipatthana Sutra, the sutra on the four foundations of mindfulness. That's key. And that's why we started with it last week. Tonight is kind of a sutra that assumes you know that sutra, or at least assumes sort of that you know about these four foundations of mindfulness. Um, In many ways, it actually kind of assumes you know a lot. So again, that's why I want to go over this. But what's interesting about tonight is that tonight's sutra is only the breath. So that's all it is. And yes, indeed, there is a sutra that is only focusing on sensations, mind states. But tonight is the sutra focusing exclusively on anapana. Anapana is actually the uh, inhalation and exhalation. The root of the word pana, sort of related to, you might know the Sanskrit word prana, 
like vital life force energy. The two are very closely aligned etymologically and otherwise, but anapana is actually this respiration, okay? And it is, of course, respiration is necessary for prana, life force energy, to begin with. So there is this intimate relationship. But what the focus of our sati, of our mindfulness is, what the focus for the whole evening is going to be the breath. And what's going to be really wild when I read this is how the Buddha is going to tell you that actually you can use the breath and just the breath to satisfy all four foundations of mindfulness. We didn't hear this last week. This is news. And not only can you use the breath to establish all four foundations of mindfulness, but from that breath created four foundations of mindfulness, you can establish the seven factors of enlightenment and get all the way to these sort of exalted states of deep meditation, samadhi and upeksha. All just from the breath. So, very interesting sutra on that. Um, a quick uh, intro to this is that it actually takes place in, um, in Shravasti, which is a classic city little town place for the Buddha to be hanging out in. We're used to the Buddha being in Anatha Pandika's park. Anatha Pandika is this very wealthy uh, donor that bought a whole mango grove for the Buddha to hang out in. Well, in, in terms of the Buddhist folklore, the Buddha had a, a number one male lay devotee slash donor, the aforementioned Anatha Pandika, and then the number one female lay devotee donor named Vishaka. Interesting thing about Vishaka, she, was, she went to see the Buddha when she was seven years old and became a stream enterer. Upon hearing the Dharma at seven, and her parents successively took her to the uh, Dharma talks by the Buddha, and so when she kind of came of age, she devoted her entire life to serving, if you will, the Sangha, the, the group of monks and nuns. If you know the story of Anatha Pindika, he bought this mango grove so that the Buddha could be kind of sheltered and there's an interesting relationship between Anatha Pandika and shelter and refuge in that sense. Well, interestingly, while Anatha Pandika has the shelter covered, Vishaka made this kind of vow to provide all of the monks and nuns with robes, food and medicine. So between Anatha Pandika and Vishaka, you're covered. Um, Interestingly, Vishaka gets married and to, I think, a guy named Migara. And so she becomes known as Migara's mother or something. It gets a little weird, but you will see the word Migara Mata. That's another name for Vishaka. And they talk about Migara Mata's palace. And this is the Eastern Palace, which is sort of across from the other palace, which is Anatha Pindika's park. There's a lot of subtleties going on here, and you'll, it'll, it'll be clearer why I'm, make, why I'm making a deal of this. It'll be clearer in a moment. Uh, but I just wanted to point out that we're kind of in a new place. We haven't really been here that much in the sutras that we've read. Uh, the, so the Buddha will be going to see Vishaka and be going to the Eastern Palace. This sutra is in three parts. The first part deals with what's called the Four Fruits. 
the four stages of enlightenment in the Theravada kind of old school Buddhist tradition. The middle part, the main part of the sutra is our four foundations of mindfulness. So this is a repeat of last week, but again with this new twist that we're going to be doing all four foundations through the first foundation. This will be interesting. And then the last, the third part of the sutra is outlined in seven factors of enlightenment. These are the sev- also the seven factors of awakening. What, what is being referred to here is bodhi, B-O-D-H-I, bhutti, uh, awakening or enlightenment. And these are the seven things or the seven aspects or whatever that bring about enlightenment that will be cultivated through this mindful awareness of the body, sensations, mind, and dharmas. And the idea of this really quickly, if you don't know, is that focusing on and practicing mindfulness on these things, bringing about these factors of enlightenment, the degree to which one is successful in all of this traditionally results in these four stages of development. This is where I'm just going to say all this because the, the sutra assumes you know this. So I want to tell you and have it up here so that when I'm reading, you'll be like, oh, oh, oh. Uh, So these are these four kind of stages of enlightenment, stages of liberation. If you're thinking about nirvana as a totally liberated state, liberated from all suffering, liberated from all desire, liberated from all hatred, greed, delusion, ignorance, all that, totally liberated, that's an arhat. Totally liberated from what's what are called these uh, five fetters of ignorance, restlessness and worry, conceit, attachment to deep states of samadhi, and attachment to deep states of dhyana. Those are four fetters or five fetters, hang-ups, that eventually the arhat transcends and achieves total nirvana. This process begins, though, by becoming what's called a shotopana, a stream enterer, and you achieve stream entryhood by having the realization of no self, by overcoming attachment to rites and rituals, and overcoming doubt. Very quickly, note about the rites and rituals. There's a lot to this. I would suggest that you think of it as not quite superstition, because it's real, <laughs> right? So we're talking like taking precautionary measures of various sorts, doing rituals and rites, but in order to achieve an end, in order to over, like, oh, somebody put a curse on me, I'm going to do a, a, a rite in order to undo that curse. Getting wrapped up in that is considered a problem. Buddhism, of course, the reason why I hesitated to call it superstition is because Buddhism isn't saying this stuff is superstitious, it's just saying that the stream enterer has no, no interest in getting wrapped up in this world with its rites and rituals. You can also think of a, a world which, by the way, isn't too far away in the past, but a world that prayed for rain, a world that did rain dances, a world that did rites and rituals over fires to make it rain. That world's not too far gone, and it may not even be gone, if you know what I mean. So what the rites and rituals here too is, is, is about this worldly concerns, oh, we need some rain, and then getting all worked up with your rites and rituals to make it rain. 
versus some sort of more Buddhist attitude of like, maybe it's going to rain, maybe it's not going to rain. A more unattached to outcomes kind of approach. So this one's a little in- interesting in our modern world, but I just want you to know that it's up in there. And it could also be thought of as kind of obsessive compulsive behavior type stuff. Also superstitious type behavior, if you know what I mean. Uh, unlocking and locking the door three times and three times and three times to make sure it's safe. That's obsessive compulsive behavior and it amounts to a rite and a ritual that I can't leave my house until I do the ritual. This is old behavior. Ritual, that type of ritual behavior is very old and, Buddhas, and the Buddhists got over it a while ago. So they're saying if you're over the self or the notion of a singular self, if you're over rites and rituals and you've gotten over doubt, you are our stream enterer. At any point during this stage, please interject questions, comments. You will get answers. The idea is that if you go past that entry-level stream enterer, you become what's known as a once-returner. This is going to be followed by a non-returner, and what's being referred to here is rebirth in the world, (laughs) dying and being reborn in the world either one more time or never again. That's what's being referred to here. Uh, A sakadagaman, once-returner. If you develop total control over your sensual desire and total control over your hatred or ill will, and you have a sense of no self, you're over the rites and rituals and no doubt, then you're a once-returner, meaning you will only be reborn in this world one more time. All right? If you have become completely free from sensual desire and completely free from ill will, then you're not coming back anymore. You will be, uh, what they say is, reborn possibly multiple times, but in heavenly realms only, where it's easier to do all the meditation and all of that, and then you will eventually achieve arhatship. But there is also a way in which if you, would, if you are free from the five lower fetters, these three and these two, and then you overcome all five of those, so all ten fetters, as they say, then you're a worthy one, worthy of offerings, worthy of of uh, uh, receiving offerings, and that makes you this arahat. Worthy of rites and rituals. Say again. Worthy of rites and rituals. Mm, there's a lot. Yes, there's a lot of interest to that. But the worthy is is if you don't consider the alms as rite and ritual, but as just karmic reciprocity. Then the idea of being an arahat or worthy one, what it means is is that if somebody gives you an offering they will get punya or merit in return. Whereas a non-stream enterer, just an average Joe, if I give them an offering, they get free stuff. (laughs) And I'm out stuff. So there's sort of an idea that there's no karmic reciprocity going on with your average Joe, but if you're doing the path or the practice at all, and certainly if you've achieved the state of arhat, then it's a good exchange, karmically speaking. All right, everybody good on these? They do get mentioned, and it is, again, what's being referred to in terms of the, the, um, the goal of all of this. So these are called the four fruits, meaning the fruits of practice. Um, and it's the fruit of practicing this, essentially. Uh, so again, these are our four foundations that we talked about last week. There's going to be a twist 
There will be a twist from last week. So there's going to be four aspects of the body. And again, what's going to be interesting about this, when you read it, or when I read it, is that I've said this before, and I'm sticking to this. This idea of breathing in and breathing out and being aware that you're breathing in, breathing out, or being aware that your breath is short, or being aware that it's long, or breathing through the whole body, and then eventually calming the the body samskara, the kaya samskara. These four processes are done with mindfulness. And this is what I talked about last week, so I don't want to go too into it this week. But the idea of mindfulness, of course, is that we are focusing our attention on ideally one thing and one thing only. Now, most of us have a lot of different things on our mind. Uh, present time thoughts of of a variety of things, temperature, whatever it is, body moisture, what have you. And then awareness of the future, little nagging thoughts about ideas of the tonight, later on tonight, tomorrow, what have you. Maybe lingering thoughts from earlier today or yesterday. But the idea is that our minds are sort of uh, divided between a lot of different things. And the practice of mindfulness, of sati, is about anchoring the mind on an object and trying to hold it there. And your mind will wander. Yes, that's the idea. But the practice is to bring it back to that object and to develop a fixed awareness that is not uh, easily swayed, but that is anchored on, well, tonight, the breath. And the thing that I'm going to say that I'm sticking to is that this meditation tonight is going to be asking you to be mindful of your breathing and then while mindful of your breathing to become aware of these other things. And it's a little bit like doing this, meaning you are kind of doing two things at once. You're breathing in mindfully and out mindfully, but you are also mindful of these other things. And so it does get to be a little bit like rubbing your stomach and patting your head, which not all of us can do very well. So I just want you to to know if you're wondering, wait, am I supposed to be concentrating on my breath or am I supposed to be concentrating on my mind? Yes. The idea being that you are using the inhalation and the exhalation as this anchor to then focus on states of mind. And we'll, we'll go through these in the text. But I just want you to know that if you, if you pick up on that or you have that question, wait, am I supposed to be focusing on the breath or the object? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, again, these are four sort of um, not new. These appear in the sutra we did last week, but this one does not. The final stage of the body meditation is calming what's called the body samskara. And this word samskara is interesting in Buddhism, of course. It means conditioning. And the way that you can think of conditioning or samskara as it pertains to the body is stress, holding on. And that you have built up, oh, this knot in my shoulder. But that knot in your shoulder builds up over conditioning, over holding it that way a lot. So the whole initial practice of this 
breathing, noticing your breathing in and out, then noticing whether it's long or short, then breathing in through the whole body. You're going to be imagining that the breath is filling every down to the little, your big toe, all the way to the top of your head. So whole body inspiration, expiration, right? Or inspiration, expiration. And then the result of that being a calming of bodily samskaras. All right? Sensations, these are brand new sensations to last week. Last week we were looking at sensations of all kinds, different sorts. Now we're going to be focusing on sensations of rapture, bliss, uh, not body conditioning or samskara, but now chitta or mind conditioning. So we're going to be looking at our own mind conditioning, meaning the little knots in our mind. And then that will end with the calming of that mind conditioning. So if you have a mental knot, not a knot in my shoulder now, but I have a mental knot. Some, somebody said something to me that I just can't let go of. It's nagging at me. And the more that I think about it, samskarically, it gets deeper and deeper. And now it's like this really in my mind. And it won't let me go any forward because I keep holding on to it. Well, at the end of this, that samskara is to be ironed out. It's a way of thinking of it, at least. Chitta, the third foundation, or mind, is actually mind states. And this is where we're getting really meta, folks, because the first stage of this will be mindfulness of the mind itself, not the conditioning of the mind, but the very thinking mind itself. This is getting rather esoteric. The mind thinking about itself in that way. Then you breathe in, you breathe out, satisfying the mind. And that's an interesting idea, but the idea being that if we are struggling with sensual desire, meaning the desire to open our eyes and watch TV, the idea is to put in the earplugs and listen to a podcast. The idea is that if one wants satisfaction from the outside world, for Buddhists, at least in terms of meditation, that's a problem. And so satisfying the mind is this through breathing and breathing out, breathing in and breathing out, you satisfy the mind of its craving for external stimuli. Concentrated mind is now focusing that mind that is now satisfied. I'm cool. I don't want any of your uh, entertainment or whatever. I'm good with my own mind. Then you can concentrate that mind and then ultimately that mind becomes liberated free of all fetters, refer to the fetters. And then the fourth process of this, and in many ways, this is all preparatory, folks. This is all preparatory so that these dharmas, these truths that the Buddha laid out, like everything is impermanent. That's a dharma. That's a truth. And in fact, it's not even a Buddhist dharma. It is a Western scientific law of thermodynamic truth that all things are impermanent, right? That's truth. The, the idea of Buddhism, of course, is that we don't always live in alignment with truth, meaning that we are holding on to these things that are impermanent, and then when they reveal their true impermanent nature, we go, ah, where did it go? We knew it was coming all along. But the idea of impermanence or the fading away of things or the ultimate cessation of things or the ultimate relinquishing of things, the idea is, is that these are deep, deep ideas. 
And that if I go running out into the street and tell everybody, it's impermanent, everybody. Oh, it's impermanent. People are going to go, you know, right? The idea is this stuff is not easy to, you know, it's easy to sort of get or whatever, but it's difficult to really like embody in that way. Because again, we often operate as if things are not impermanent, or at least we often act as if we try really hard we can stop it. And it's not going to happen. But again, the idea is that these are deep. And so one must prepare to think about these things. That's the idea of this, is that this is all preparatory, especially when we're preparing the mind to then consider these things. Clear-headed. The idea being, of course, with this sutra, in which I have now plenty of time to read, is that if you go through all of these things in this way, using the breath as that anchor, you could develop these seven factors of enlightenment. The first is mindfulness, which, of course, we're doing. This is the Anapanasati Sutra, the Mindfulness Sutra. It's what we're in the business of doing on the four foundations of sati, of mindfulness. So obviously this is developing that factor of enlightenment, right? Obviously. The second factor of enlightenment, the second thing that can bring about total liberation and enlightenment is the investigation of dharmas, dharma vikaya, investigating dharmas. Important note about Buddhism, it does not say uh, develop blind faith in the Buddha and follow him blindly, <laughs> No, it says investigate. Look into it. Think about it. Which, again, is exactly what's going on here in this fourth stage where we are investigating dharmas, looking at impermanence, the fading away of things. So that's the investigation of dharmas, a factor that brings about enlightenment. Virya, which you may have heard of from the uh, paramitas of the bodhisattva path. Energy, I like the word drive. It's this idea of a virya is also translated as determination. So this is kind of the opposite of laziness, and one does not get enlightened or liberated through laziness, but through energy or drive, effort, effort's another one, effort and then uh, determination. So drive or determination can get you enlightened. Rapture or pity, which of course is here in the first sensation that we're going to look at, uh, don't, but don't get attached to it. Um, but this is actually a kind of code word for the first jhana, for that first stage of Buddhist meditation, that first moment when one is slightly liberated from the suffering body. It's rapturous or pity and developing rapture, developing that, meaning getting into jhana brings about enlightenment. Relaxation. Pasadi. Brings about enlightenment. It's a whole other thing. This is not dhyana. It's not samadhi. It's, not, it's a whole other thing. Relaxing. Then there's samadhi. Samadhi is this intense concentration in which uh, through all of this, through all of this and all of this, there's me and the object. And I can use the object, my breath, a bowl, the Buddha, a candle flame. I can use that object to get into rapture, to relax, 
But if I keep going in that, in sati, in mindfulness, focused attention on something, there can become a complete blurring of me and it. No more me meditating on the candle flame. There's a samadhi. This word samadhi, to see the same, to be one. A lot of people translate samadhi as union. Union with the all. So this is an interesting place where the concentration becomes so intense that the sense of self, no self, the sense of self and the sense of object, the subject-object dualistic me-it experience, gone. And there's just experience. That's samadhi. And then the seventh stage or the seventh thing that brings about enlightenment is upeksha, equanimity, complete, 100% even-keeled Upeksha, equanimity, just, (laughs) right? That's the name of the Buddhist game. This is why Buddhism sometimes gets called like the religion of peace or whatever, because their main goal is stillness, equanimity. It's another equanimity, stillness, upeksha. All right, folks, that's where we're going tonight. Noe. Concentration and that, that separation of the dualism, the separation of the object person, is that also in reference to uh, signlessness? Oh, yeah, because the signlessness is when we're even past samadhi in a way. Yeah, because the idea, just quickly on the signlessness, is that the idea is that when one is in one of these concentrations, mm-hmm. it has qualities that make it different than other samadhis. The signlessness has no qualities. It is the qualityless, and one is meditating on qualitylessness. All right, we good? No. Is the, you're saying that this sutta, I might be getting ahead of us, but you're saying that the sutta is about doing all of this while being mindful of the breath. And I, I guess my question is, especially when we thought at any, let's say, rapture, PT, is it that I am aware of the breath, I'm mindful of the breath, and I am mindful of rapture, or is it that via the breath, I am mindful of rapture? The last one. And this is where, now that you know where this is going, you know what all these words mean, now when I read the Buddha, the real Buddha words, It'll, he says it better than I could as far as your, what your question is. But yes, as far as I understand, it's the latter, where it is through the breath that then one focuses on that thing. But again, that's why I made that weird reference of the patting the head and rubbing the stomach because it's kind of two things at once, but it's not. Because <laughs> there is sort of a, a move in meditation of you know giving some percent of your attention to one thing, but also others. So... Yes. Any other questions, ideas about all of this? Um, it shouldn't. It's not that long. Um, I'm gonna try to do this. I'm gonna try. See how it goes. Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One, the Buddha, was living in Shravasti in the eastern park in the palace of Migara's mother together with many very well-known elder disciples. 
the Venerable Shariputra, the Venerable Mahamagliyana, the Venerable Mahakashapa, the Venerable Mahakachana, the Venerable Mahakotina, the Venerable Mahakapina, the Venerable Mahakunda, the Venerable Anarudha, the Venerable Ravata, the Venerable Ananda, and other very well-known elder disciples. Now, on that occasion, elder bhikkhus had been teaching and instructing newer bhikkhus. Some elder bhikkhus had been teaching and instructing 10 bhikkhus. Some elder bhikkhus had been teaching and instructing 20, 30, 40 bhikkhus. And the new bhikkhus, taught and instructed by the elder bhikkhus, had achieved successive stages of high distinction. On that occasion, the Upasatha day of the 15th, on the full moon night of the Pavarana ceremony, the Blessed One was seated in the open, surrounded by the Sangha of Bhikkhus. Then, surveying the silent Sangha of Bhikkhus, he addressed them thusly, Bhikkhus, I am content with this progress. My mind is content with this progress. So arouse still more energy to attain the unattained, to achieve the unachieved, to realize the unrealized. I shall wait here at Shravasti for the Komudi full moon of the fourth month, next month. The bhikkhus of the countryside heard, the Blessed One will wait there at Shravasti for the Komudi full moon of the fourth month. And the bhikkhus of the countryside left in due course for Shravasti to see the Blessed One. And elder bhikkhus still more intensely taught and instructed the newer bhikkhus. Some elder bhikkhus taught and instructed 10 bhikkhus. Some elder bhikkhus taught and instructed 20, 30, 40 bhikkhus. And the new bhikkhus taught and instructed by the elder bhikkhus achieved successive stages of high distinction. On that occasion, the Upasatha day of the 15th, the full moon night of the Kamudi full moon of the fourth month, the Blessed One, the Buddha, was seated in the open, surrounded by the Sangha of Bhikkhus. Then, surveying the silent Sangha of Bhikkhus, he addressed them thusly. Bhikkhus, this assembly is now free from prattle. This assembly is free from chatter. It consists purely of heartwood. Such is this Sangha of Bhikkhus. Such is this assembly. Such an assembly at as is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of reverential salutation, an incomparable field of merit for the world. Such is this Sangha of Bhikkhus, such is this assembly, such an assembly that a small gift given to it becomes great and a, great, and a greater gift still. Such is this Sangha of Bhikkhus, such is this assembly. Such an assembly as is rare for the world to see. Such is this Sangha of Bhikkhus. Such is this assembly. Such an assembly as would be worthy journeying many leagues with a travel bag to see. Such is this Sangha of Bhikkhus. Such is this assembly. In this Sangha of Bhikkhus, there are Bhikkhus who are arhats, with taints destroyed, who have lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, reached their own goal, destroyed the fetters of being, and are completely liberated through final knowledge. Such bhikkhus are there in this sangha of bhikkhus. In this sangha of bhikkhus, there are bhikkhus who, with the destruction of the five lower fetters, are due to reappear spontaneously in the pure abodes, and there attain final nirvana without ever returning from that world. 
such bhikkhus are there in this Sangha of bhikkhus? In this Sangha of bhikkhus, there are bhikkhus who, with the destruction of the three fetters and with the attenuation of greed, hatred, and delusion, are once returners, returning once to this world to make an end of suffering. Such bhikkhus are there in this Sangha of bhikkhus. In this Sangha of bhikkhus, there are bhikkhus who, with the destruction of the three fetters, are stream enterers, no longer subject to perdition, bound for deliverance, headed for enlightenment. Such bhikkhus are there in this Sangha of bhikkhus. In this Sangha of bhikkhus, there are bhikkhus who abide, devoted to the development of the four foundations of mindfulness. Such bhikkhus are there in this Sangha of bhikkhus. In this Sangha of bhikkhus, there are bhikkhus who abide, devoted to the development of loving kindness, of compassion, altruistic joy and equanimity. There are bhikkhus who abide devoted to the meditation on foulness of the body, on the perception of impermanence. Such bhikkhus are there in this Sangha of bhikkhus. In this Sangha of bhikkhus, there are bhikkhus who abide devoted to the development of mindfulness of breathing. Part two, mindfulness of breathing. Bhikkhus. When mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it is of great fruit and great benefit. When mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it fulfills the four foundations of mindfulness. And when the four foundations of mindfulness are developed and cultivated, they fulfill the seven enlightenment factors. And when the seven enlightenment factors are developed and cultivated, they fulfill true knowledge and deliverance. And how bhikkhus is mindfulness of breathing developed and cultivated so that it is of great fruit and great benefit? Here a bhikkhu, gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut, sits down, having folded her legs crosswise, having set her body erect and established mindfulness in front of her, ever mindful she breathes in, mindful she breathes out. Breathing in long, she understands. I breathe in long. Or breathing out long, she understands. I breathe out long. Breathing in short, she understands. I breathe in short. Breathing out short, she understands. I breathe out short. She trains thus. I shall breathe in, experiencing the whole body of breath. She trains thus. I shall breathe out, experiencing the whole body of breath. She trains thus. I shall breathe in, tranquilizing the body conditioning. She trains thus. I shall breathe out, tranquilizing the body conditioning. She trains thus. I shall breathe in, experiencing rapture. She trains thus. I shall breathe out, experiencing rapture. She trains thus, I shall breathe in, experiencing bliss. She trains thus, I shall breathe out, experiencing bliss. She trains thus, I shall breathe in, experiencing the mental conditioning. She trains thus, I shall breathe out, experiencing the mental conditioning. She trains thus, I shall breathe in, tranquilizing the mental conditioning. And she trains thus, I shall breathe out, tranquilizing the mental conditioning. She trains thus, I shall breathe in, experiencing the mind. She trains thus, I shall breathe out, experiencing the mind. 
She trains thus, I shall breathe in, satisfying the mind. She trains thus, I shall breathe out, satisfying the mind. She trains thus, I shall breathe in, concentrating the mind. She trains thus, I shall breathe out, concentrating the mind. She trains thus, I shall breathe in, liberating the mind. And she trains thus, I shall breathe out, liberating the mind. She trains thus, I shall breathe in, contemplating impermanence. She trains thus, I shall breathe out, contemplating impermanence. She trains thus, I shall breathe in, contemplating fading away. She trains thus, I shall breathe out, contemplating fading away. She trains thus, I shall breathe in, contemplating cessation. She trains thus, I shall breathe out, contemplating cessation. She trains thus, I shall breathe in, contemplating relinquishment. She trains thus, I shall breathe out, contemplating relinquishment. Bhikkhus, this is how mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, so that it is of great fruit and great benefit. Fulfillment of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. And how bhikkhus does mindfulness of breathing, developed and cultivated, fulfill all four foundations of mindfulness? Bhikkhus, on whatever occasion a bhikkhu, breathing in long, understands, I breathe in long. Or breathing out long, understands, I breathe out long. Breathing in short, understanding I breathe in short. Or breathing out short, understanding I breathe out short. Training thus, I shall breathe in, experiencing the whole body of breath. Training thus, I shall breathe out, experiencing the whole body of breath. Training thus, I shall breathe in, tranquilizing the body formation. Training thus, I shall breathe out, tranquilizing the body formation. On that occasion, a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body. Ardent, fully aware, and mindful having put away covetedness and grief for the world. I say that this is a certain body among bodies, namely, in-breathing and out-breathing. That is why on that occasion, a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetedness and grief for the world. Bhikkhus, on whatever occasion, a bhikkhu trains thus, I shall breathe in, experiencing rapture. Or training thus, I shall breathe out, experiencing rapture. Or trains thus, I shall breathe in, experiencing pleasure, bliss. Trains thus, I shall breathe out, experiencing bliss. Training thus, I shall breathe in, experiencing the mental conditioning. Training thus, I shall breathe out, experiencing the mental conditioning. Training thus, I shall breathe in, tranquilizing the mental conditioning. And training thus, I shall breathe out, tranquilizing the mental conditioning. On that occasion, a bhikkhu abides contemplating sensations as sensations, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetedness and grief for the world. I say that this is a certain feeling, a certain sensation among sensations, namely, giving close attention to in-breathing and out-breathing. That is why, 
on that occasion of Bhikkhu abides contemplating sensations as sensations, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetedness and grief for the world. Bhikkhus, on whatever occasion a Bhikkhu trains thus, I shall breathe in experiencing the mind. Training thus, I shall breathe out experiencing the mind. Training thus, I shall breathe in satisfying the mind. Training thus, I shall breathe out satisfying the mind. Training thus, I shall breathe in concentrating the, concentrating the mind. Training thus, I shall breathe out concentrating the mind. Training thus, I shall breathe in liberating the mind. Training thus, I shall breathe out liberating the mind. On that occasion, Abhiku abides contemplating mind as mind, ardent, fully aware, and mindful having put away covetedness and grief for the world. I do not say that there is the development of mindfulness of breathing for one who is forgetful, who is not fully aware. That is why on that occasion, a bhikkhu abides contemplating mind as mind, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetedness and grief for the world. Bhikkhus, on whatever occasion a bhikkhu trains thus, I shall breathe in contemplating impermanence. Trains thus, I shall breathe out contemplating impermanence. Or training thus, I shall breathe in contemplating fading away. Or training thus, I shall breathe out contemplating fading away. Training thus, I shall breathe in contemplating cessation. Training thus, I shall breathe out contemplating cessation. Training thus, I shall breathe in contemplating relinquishment. Training thus, I shall breathe out contemplating relinquishment. On that occasion, a bhikkhu abides contemplating dharmas as dharmas, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetedness and grief for the world. Having seen with wisdom the abandoning of covetedness and grief for the world, she closely looks on with equanimity. That is why on that occasion, a bhikkhu abides contemplating dharmas as dharmas, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetedness and grief for the world. Bhikkhus, that is how mindfulness of breathing, developed and cultivated, fulfills all four foundations of mindfulness. Part three, fulfillment of the seven factors of enlightenment. And how bhikkhus do the four foundations of mindfulness developed and cultivated fulfill the seven factors of enlightenment? Bhikkhus, on whatever occasion a bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetedness and grief for the world, on that occasion, unremitting mindfulness is established in her. On whatever occasion unremitting mindfulness is established in a bhikkhu, on that occasion the mindfulness enlightenment factor is aroused in her, and she develops it, and by development it comes to fulfillment in her. Abiding thus mindful, she investigates and examines that state with wisdom, and, and embarks upon a full inquiry into it. On whatever occasion, abiding thus mindful, a bhikkhu investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it. On that occasion, the investigation of dharma's factor of enlightenment is aroused in her 
And she develops it. And by development, it comes to fulfillment in her. And one who investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it, tireless energy is aroused in her. On whatever occasion, tireless energy is aroused in a, in a bhikkhu who investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry into it. On that occasion, the energy enlightenment factor is aroused in her and she develops it. And by development, it comes to fulfillment in her. In one who has aroused energy, unworldly rapture arises. On whatever occasion unworldly rapture arises in a bhikkhu who has aroused energy, on that occasion the rapture factor of enlightenment is aroused in her and she develops it and by development it comes to fulfillment in her. In one who is rapturous, the body and the mind become tranquil. On whatever occasion the body and the mind become tranquil in a bhikkhu, who is rapturous, on that occasion, the tranquility factor of enlightenment is aroused in her and she develops it. And by development, it comes to fulfillment in her. In one whose body is tranquil and who feels pleasure, the mind becomes concentrated. On whatever occasion, the mind becomes concentrated in a bhikkhu whose body is tranquil and who feels pleasure, on that occasion, the concentration factor of enlightenment is aroused in her and she develops it. And by development, it comes to fulfillment in her. She closely looks on with equanimity at the mind thus concentrated. On whatever occasion, a bhikkhu closely looks on with equanimity at the mind thus concentrated. On that, on that occasion, the equanimity factor of enlightenment is aroused in her and she develops it. And by development, it comes to fulfillment in her. Bhikkhus, on whatever occasion a bhikkhu abides, contemplating sensations as sensations, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world, the factors of enlightenment are aroused in her and she develops them. And by development, it comes to they come to fulfillment in her. Bhikkhus, on whatever occasion a bhikkhu abides contemplating, the mind is mind, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. The factors of enlightenment are aroused in her, and she develops it, them, and by development, it, they come to fulfillment in her. Bhikkhus, on whatever occasion a bhikkhu abides contemplating dharmas as dharmas, ardent, fully aware, and mindful, Having put away covetedness and grief for the world, the factors of enlightenment are aroused in her and she develops them and by development it come, they come to fulfillment in her. Because that is how the four foundations of mindfulness developed and cultivated fulfill the seven factors of enlightenment. And how, Bhikkhus, do the seven factors of enlightenment develop and cultivated fulfill true knowledge and deliverance. Here, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu develops the mindfulness factor of enlightenment, which is supported by seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, and ripens in relinquishment. 
She develops the investigation of Dharma's factor of enlightenment, the energy factor of enlightenment, the rapture factor of enlightenment, the tranquility factor of enlightenment, the concentration factor of enlightenment, and the equanimity factor of enlightenment, which are all supported by seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, and ripens in relinquishment. Because that is how the seven factors of enlightenment developed and cultivated fulfill true knowledge and deliverance. This is what the Blessed One said. The bhikkhus were satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. Spot. Simple dimple, right? Questions, ideas, comments, anything. Jordan. Um, can you unpack what it means to, to having you know, putting away covetedness and grief for the world? Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. There's one thing that I was like, that's what we got to talk about. Um, that one's, it's really easy and it really is wonderful and beautiful because it cuts to the heart of Dharma, cuts to the heart of Buddhism. So, to covet the world or to have grief for the world. The idea is it's this two modes of either, um, you know, you can imagine, you know, you can imagine a state, I think we can all imagine such a state, of of um, you know of really being um, elated about this world and the things in this world and being really excited about um, oh all kinds of things going on a trip or like oh, anything anything the idea of being covetous to covet this world is to be desirous of this world to to love it to think it's great. To, to be totally, really, really, like, desireful of it. Like, I, you know, I just want to, like, I want a different meal every night, and I want to sleep in a different hotel room every night. And I, that would be extreme desire for this world, to experience everything in it, to really, like, revel in it. That's one thing. Then there's this fucking world to have grief for the world. This place sucks. I hate everybody in this place. I don't want to have anything to do with this place. Totally having grief for the world. So that's the exact opposite of Mr. I want to party all the time is Mr. Screw you in your party. This is putting away those two modes of being overly desirous of this world but also being overly negative about this world. Being overly... um, Actually, a flip side of this also is being overly troubled by this world. To have grief for this world. Oh, the world's ending. Oh, no. Everybody has always thought the world is ending. I'm sorry to be the historian, anthropologist, scholar to break it to you, but everybody has always thought the world's ending. (laughs) And there's always been some institution there encouraging them that that's true. So we're always, it's an existential problem. Our own mortality, the fate of this world, it's an existential situation that we wrestle with a lot. And it can kind of move in one direction of a kind of, I don't want to call it hedonism, 
Because it's not even bad. What I mean, it's bad in a Buddhist sense of attachment and desire, but it's not necessarily like overindulging in this world. It's just this idea of being desirous of this world. Hatching schemes and plans about this world. Like being des- overly desirous of it, but then again, the flip of it is this kind of almost depressed state of like, I don't want to have anything to do with this world or it's all going to hell anyways. It, it, it's the idea that the world is making me really happy or the world's making me really sad. And the move here is to abandon reliance on the world for your emotional state. Yeah? Make sense? So it's like, dis- like a disenchantment? Dispassion is the word the text uses. I want to remind everybody that we're reading an old school Buddhist text, right? There's a few things I wanted to say about the old school nature of this Buddhist text. So this old school nature, meaning the Theravada path, yeah, their move is dispassion, disinterest. They do want to arrive at upeksha, this kind of really even keeled attitude. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that even keeled attitude. I'm all about that even keeled attitude. And, and developing it because I see the wisdom in having that kind of what the Chinese call a ping chang xin, this level heart, ping chang xin. So that idea of an, a level heart is good. And what they're talking about again is like, you know, it's like, I mean, a kind of caricature that comes to mind is just this idea of like turning on the TV and either being like, or being like, mm, like saddened by what you see or really excited by what you see. And this is saying, put both of those down. Don't have your happiness, joy or whatever be dependent on what the television tells you. And by television, I mean by what the world tells you in that way. So that's sort of what that's at. I did want to mention, any ideas about that though? The covetedness and grief of the world, putting it away? It should line up well with the idea of equanimity and with the word that got repeated, dispassion. I just wanted to note about this, uh, this idea. This is a particularly Theravadin, old school Buddhist way of thinking. Um, this kind of hierarchy of enlightenment. Um, there's a lot of uh, problems with this problems that arise both institutionally that I've mentioned before where this becomes kind of like a uh, a hierarchy meaning a kind of yeah a hierarchy where you, these people got to bow to these people and these people got to bow to those people and those people so yeah sociological problem with this is that as soon as you have a hierarchy you have a hierarchy and a lot of things can go wrong with hierarchies like I'm pointing out with the male female thing tonight the, the, the philosophical dharmic problem with this from a later Buddhist Mahayana point of view is what, what returns? What doesn't come back anymore? What idea are you reinforcing with this? You're reinforcing the idea of a soul or an Atman that's on this journey of, of liberation. Now, not to say this provisionally can't be helpful and not to say that upayakly this can't have benefit in terms of understanding these fetters 
and sort of understanding that maybe one doesn't release all 10 fetters at once. And so one could sort of hierarchify one's own situation. But as soon as you get into, I'm a, well, I'm a non-returner, what are you? As soon as that starts to happen, which seemed to have happened very quickly, then it's, I think it ceases to be upayek or it ceases to be expedient in that way. So I hope everybody heard what I just said, because I didn't. But it sounded good to me. I don't want to take us out of the, what we're doing here, but is it, are they, is there an idea that maybe that hierarchy was sort of imposed on what the Buddha was saying? Or, because I mean, I agree, like, it's nice to know that if, you, if you're not getting all the way there, that at least you could have hope that you'll get there later, mm-hmm. then another life. Yep. Oh, this is, this is a scheme that in the suttas of the Pali Canon is throughout it. Yeah. Now, most of the time, as far as I've... I, I kind of went looking for a while. I gave up because I didn't really care that much. But it did seem that these titles were only given by the Buddha in terms of the Buddha being like, you're a once-returner. Not a lot of records of people saying, I am in the suttas, in history, in the, in the real history and anthropology of Buddhism. You have lots of people stepping up and saying, I'm a non-returner. But in the suttas, it seems like it's a, it's a way the Buddha identified other people's stages. And for maybe what I said a moment ago, maybe, that fits with that. Because again, I think that in terms of one's, and Brendan, this is sort of goes to your comment Again, I think towards one's own development, this is a helpful way of thinking about it. It's only when we're comparing development that it, for me, it breaks down. And so the Buddha recognizing these stages in other people, I think, fits with that a little bit. Yeah, and then you can do, you can do all kinds of things with, with the way that he discerns sort of his followers. I mean, this, this, again, this seems like it just falls under the giant category of like, them trying to grapple with a belief system that the Buddha pretty much is tearing down. Or at least Mahayana sutras are saying, yeah. Yeah, and also, you know, this gets really complicated, and I don't want to fully yeah. go down this road. But as I've said many times, there's still reincarnation in Buddhism. Because just as I... I've always, I keep, I say this all the time, just as there was me an hour ago, me two hours ago, me yesterday, me 10 days ago, and all of those configurations of skandhas kept creating the beings that eventually wound up being this one, and I am in the process of creating my next rebirth in a moment, over and over there. So there's still reincarnation of energy, there's a momentum, we can think about that momentum, but what once return and non-returner does is it starts to create this sort of individual entity that's going through this versus just a momentum of energy, right? That keeps uh, propelling itself along based on karma or action of thought, speech, and mind. So, yeah. There it happened again. <laughs> just, uh, Noe, did you have something? Yeah. It's uh, my observation that... that, that you know, you can't have any of this without the breath. Period. Always there. Yeah. Because when you stop breathing, you stop breathing. And how, and I cannot stop breathing. So, 
of my own accord. I mean, of course, you know, there's there's ways, but you know, I don't think that way. Mm -hmm. But but physically, try to stop breathing. It's not possible. And this, well, you said that there's that moment of, of letting go of the breath that he you were going to mention. But it's 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 the breath, the physicality, this physicality, whatever it is. For me, it's always the breath. What it is, where it is, any of that. I just release it. It's lovely to have this investigation. Thank you. My pleasure. The breath is a tricky one. The breath is a very tricky one. It's one of those things that you do enough uh, anapanasati, you do enough mindfulness of breathing, and you start to... Uh, the whole inside-outside thing with breathing is really weird, right? That it kind of begins out here, is inside for a while, is outside, so you're really dealing with the inside-outside, but then also like a, a real weird question of like, what is the breath? Is it the air? Or is it the movement of the body? Is it some weird deep, you know? And then, yeah, there's, so there's a lot going on with that, right? You know, and then there's an interesting thing about breath that's related to this idea that you're bringing up, Noe, that it's like the breath is, it's essential. Ideas, questions, further comments. Um, I guess the, the contemplating on mental conditioning, I sort of, I'm not sure how to think about that. Like, Think like meditating on how you are the way you are in this sort of artificial way. You're talking about this particular. Yeah, that, that line sort of struck me. But I don't you know, this whole sutra is very interesting for its use of samskara in terms of a kaya samskara, a chitta samskara, and that's different than our normal samskara, mm -hmm. which would technically, I guess, be a vinyana samskara. Technically, yeah, because. What that is a samskara of, although it's tricky, but the idea is that it's not our normal uh, samskara. But what I should say, rewind, rewind, erase, erase, samskara is this idea of conditioned. And actually driving here uh, uh, this afternoon, I wanted to say this about these skandhas. So if you're familiar with the five skandhas, this basic idea of no self, Actually, five skandhas, form or matter, uh, sensations, perception, conditioning, and then consciousness. And the idea is that these are the so-called five elements of the self or the five aggregates or constituent elements of the self. But what I, this afternoon, what I was like, oh, I, gotta, I wanna tell them this. Samskara is conditioning. Conditioning of what? It depends. Could be the body, could be the mind, could be a whatever, a rug. There's just con the idea of conditioning, which means after repetitions, there becomes this um, a, a, a mode. Uh, I call it a habit. A habit, right? And so whether it's me raising my shoulders to my earlobes all the time as a habit, and therefore developing this samskara of the body that's a part of a repetition, or whether it's me having this obsessive thought over and over and over and over and developing a samskara, 
Whatever it is, when the Buddhists say that one of the five aggregates is conditioning, it's not a thing. That's what I wanted to tell you like this, this afternoon. I was like, do they think it's a thing? They might think it's a thing. Because you write it on the board in a color or in a pie chart, and you start to think it's a thing. So I want you all tonight to then do a deep dive in the idea that one of the aggregates of the self is conditioning. Not, uh, you know, it depends, but one of the ways in which this is going down is conditioning of the body, the mind, you name it. Yes, so much, man. I have to say something, so much of that. So, Buddha Dasa. I had the privilege, so I had a comment on exactly what to say in the conditioning right now. From Buddha Dasa, I spent about 10 days in in a retreat place. But Buddha Dasa, this guy, we all did Anapanasati. And we talked a lot, about 10 days just about this samskara from that level of where we did Anapanasati. What Buddha, what he was referring to, exactly what we said from a different container, kind of, they drill us for 10 days, so I'm just delivering of that message. Uh, it's one more, and it's the place, the Garden of Liberation. About four hours south of Mankar. They said that that sky is translated from multiple languages, but for Pali, it's not only conditioning, it's the condition and conditioner. So the, the term sanskara that they use, sasara, or shankara too, in Pali, right? In level one, two, is in the non-dualistic approach that the condition name is the conditioner and just the noun condition. So when you go to the the place of the Kaya and the mind you kind of imply the process from all aspects of that movement. So you are not fixated on the object subject. And hmm. by that's the practice of the breath. You just hmm. ground in that. So it's a structural thing. That in that what they drilled is so much that the in and out just unfold those truth. The in and out of breath, exactly how you did it too. When you read the absolute sort of doing the breathing, also experience and conditioning. Wow. That breath just unfolded. It's not just conditioning. It's yeah, yeah. Conditioner also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Condition. Yeah, and that gets me back, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that gets me right back to this idea of it as a, as a skandha, as an element of the self, and this weird idea that what this is, is that the conditioning is the conditioner, and all, like that idea. And again, what's helpful is that to think of it not, well, at least what I'm talking about right now is like not as a thing, but as a, as a process or as a, right, it gets tricky, but that's, it's helpful to think of it that way, I think, right? As this habit repetition that then could manifest in a lot of different ways. In fact, what it actually seemed like uh, regarding Noe's question a little while ago, there's a couple of comments I was reading that was actually like, the body samskara is breathing. Right. That we can't stop this habit 
this condition and that actually the calming of the kaya samskara is a state of stillness of the breathing even a, a, a small wind they say they say that it's it 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 just moves like the natural ambience but without the actual movement of the lungs now take that for what it's worth because again that's just one comment one interpretation but no it seems like in a way mindfulness is um like full like if you were able to be completely mindful then you would see through the conditioning because the conditioning is the is the sort of I mean like a, like a very superficial level uh, it, it, it's like a mindless way of, of seeing the world it's mm. like a like you know my, my hand is on my knee it's like I mean it is but that's my conditioning you know so like the understanding things at a completely ex- it's not even understanding but experiencing things just as experience is in a way what sort of ultimate mindfulness is bypasses any conditioning. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Um, I mean, this idea of bypass, though, you know, because the way I see so much of what's on the board and also the, the Buddhist project as a whole is about, you know, so much of the Buddhist project is about dealing with conditioning, these habits, habits of the mind, habits of the heart, of emotions, and all of that. And the project, as I understand it, is a, a technique for getting rid of those habits. And that that is just a slow process that, it, that comes about from mindfulness. That, that classic image of the disturbed body of water, the glass of water that's spinning all around with all those ideas. The only way to get it to come to stillness is to let it be. You cannot shake the glass into submission. You cannot stir the water the other way to get it to calm down. The only way to get the water to calm down is to wait and try not to disturb it more. There's no better analogy for Buddhist meditation than that in terms of what's this all, what is all this about? It's about not adding more. Um, you know, they describe in Buddhism the mind as like a pond. And that ideas or thoughts are like rocks thrown into the pond that create these ripples. Oh, I had an idea. Oh, I had an idea. I had another idea. A bunch of ideas. And the mind is like this torrent of waves being thrown. And then in order for us to calm down, we're like, well, let me think about some more stuff. Throw some more rocks in there. No, stop throwing rocks in the pond, i.e. stop thinking. And I know that for the thinking mind, that's like, suicide. If I stop thinking, that's death. No, I'm sorry, it's not. It's actually the beginning of life. If you like this idea of of not throwing more rocks in the pond and to come to that still state of mind that you have, you possess, you can get there. Can I try to say it another way? Yeah. I totally, what you were saying is what I, one of the ways I'm thinking of it. Another way of saying it, I think what I'm thinking about is that there's no believing in mindfulness. So there's no like. Oh, oh I, and there's no knowing, really. 
because as soon as you know mm. and believe, that's conditioned mind. I mean, that's not, it's, you know, mindfulness is like a sort of pure experience, I guess. I, I said that before. But mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. what I'm thinking of it, which relates to what you're saying. We're like, oh, let me name that. Oh, I know what that is. Mm -hmm. Those are all rocks, right? Those are all rocks, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, the investigation part, you know, that comes from different places. Like you're doing investigation, right? How you bring these amazing concepts to us right now, right? But also how the breath does this investigation, <laughs> right? And how there is this really secularized sense. Again, there's so much, you know, psychology there, right? Hmm. Cognitive analysis. Yep. Especially with like all the aspect of conditioning. So the idea of like breath condition, you know, mm -hmm. investigation, really the self knowledge that is coming here and the breaking down. <laughs> so mathematical, but like there's so much performance how you read the sutra. Like there's so much that it's not about talking about it, it's performing so much. Mm hmm. All right, then with that, call a night. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We, we did that all Zutra.